Well, good morning, everybody. So good to be here this morning. I hope that you're enjoying the church service so far. Um, we have some birthdays. Happy birthday. I feel, I'm feeling like I'm getting old today. And some of you who might be way older than me are probably mad at me for saying that. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little tired. I feel like, um, God, um, I'm going to be 40. Um, that's a midlife crisis. That's when you go through midlife crises, right? I had a little debate about grammar, if it's Christ, crises or crisis. But maybe I'll buy a motorcycle. <laughs> it's so good to be with you all this morning. I hope that you're enjoying the Lord's Day. This is the day that we get to remember that Jesus Christ is risen. And if you're feeling older this morning, like me, just remember that in heaven years, you're not even born yet. right? You are not even there yet. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen? Um, we're heading towards an eternal kingdom where Jesus Christ lives and abides forever. And, and gosh, I just hope that we can cast our care, cares daily at the Lord's feet when we feel a little bit stressed out or worried about just the routines of life. Um, but we're just happy to be with you all. I hope that you're having a good time this morning. And um, what a great spring. Um, it has sprung. Um, so we are, we're just delighted to be with you. You guys might have known. I didn't talk um, a little, I didn't really talk, mention this last week, but I was away for a little while down south in North Carolina. I went to Kentucky and all these different places, and it was such a lot of fun, uh, such a great time, and um, there are people that uh, were willing to help us out, even financially for the expansion project that we're doing here. We got some, some people um, who are just eager to even make some donations to us and encourage us. So we're just super excited about that, and I had a great time. I was just encouraged, and um, they prayed for me and treated me well, and it was, a, it was a lot of fun. But it's so good to be home and to have um, just uh, friendly faces and smiles um, um, this morning. So we're continuing our study of the book of Nehemiah. I hope that you're enjoying the process going through it. We're in chapter 10. We've been, been in chapter 10 a little bit longer than I expected, but um, we're just going through the book of Nehemiah because really Nehemiah is about the state of your spiritual life. Where, where are we at as a church in, in our own just kind of awakening? Um, and it's a very important thing to consider because some of us maybe have been Christians for quite some time. And, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you know that you've gone through stages of the spiritual life where you can be very high or very low um, or indifferent. Things like this can happen. And um, we want to be the kind of people that are alive, that, um, that are able to, to experience the joy and peace of Christ. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that where we're going to be, we're almost done with Nehemiah, where we're going to next um, is probably the book of Philippians in the New Testament. And the reason for that is because it has a lot to do with joy. And I kind of feel as if sometimes joy is a, a missing ingredient in our lives. And why is that? It's, it's important. Um, we tend to get discouraged or stressed or depressed. Um, and I want to look at what, what the Apostle Paul in the New Testament has to say about that. And, um, and I hope that we uh, enjoy that when we get to that. But for now, we're continuing through this interesting book, the book of Nehemiah, um, and um, I hope that you've been enjoying it. We've basically seen Nehemiah recognizing the devastation of Israel. Israel had been destroyed and exiled, and basically because they had turned to idols to worship idols. Um, and the book of Nehemiah is basically a massive national repentance where the people of Israel are returning back to Jerusalem, not only to rebuild the broken down walls, but to re rebuild the broken down spiritual life of, of their own hearts and soul as a community of faith. So when the, ru when the ruined walls had been re rebuilt, the nation gathers in the city to hear the word of God. 
They start listening to the the public proclamation of God's word, hearing the word spoken to them. Because remember, friends, this morning, God has spoken to you. God is not silent. He speaks to us in a general way in creation, um, in in all the beauty of life, but he speaks to us specifically through his word, too. And they start to hear his word, and that's, the, that's how revival starts to happen again in our lives. We begin to hear the word of God. And not only do we hear the word of God, as a result of hearing the word of God, we recognize ways in which we've sinned against our holy and righteous and altogether lovely God. And we grieve and repent that sin, and we see this cycle happening in the lives of the Israelites. They begin to grieve and to repent over their sin. But not only that, it's not just a a dreary, rainy day where they've failed their God, but they also remember that God is good and gracious and faithful to his covenant and faithful to forgive them should they come to him in repentance. So finally what we see is that basically the end process of this revival happening is a commitment to separate, to be ye holy. They started to recognize ways in which they had had disobeyed the Lord and had determined to not disobey in those ways anymore. So they make a covenant, and this is the, the, in this context, this is the final stage of revival. They're making a covenant with God to collectively obey his word in three distinct ways that they had specifically been glaringly disobedient. And remember, in our past sermons, we talked about this. The first way was that they were committing to no longer marry anyone of a different faith. The second way, they were committing to honor the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Um, I believe we spoke about that last week. Finally, um, today we'll talk about they were committing to not neglect the house of God. And you recall, that was the final verse in the, um, in the passage that we read. The very last sentence of this lengthy corporate promise was we will not neglect the house of God. So part of their identification to the nations as being separate, in other words, the way in which people outside of God's people know that we are God's people is the way we devote ourselves to each other. The way we love each other, care for each other. See, we will not neglect the house of God is a way in which we are identified as separate. So part of their identification to the nations as being separate, children of God, was their care and provision for their community of faith, their local church as we would call it today. And any child of God that's truly alive in Christ is going to start doing that naturally. We're going to start wanting to find other people that love Jesus too. And anyone who's ever come to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time knows exactly what I mean. You didn't have to be told to do that. You just did it. But they had neglected the care of the house of of their God. They had neglected the community of faith in different ways. One way in particular we'll see today. So this morning I want to do two things. I want to explain how exactly the Israelites specifically had neglected the house of God. And secondly, I want to demonstrate how this instructs us today, how we might fall into the same trap. So let's look how specifically the Israelites neglected the house of God. In the Old Testament, the place called the temple was of great priority in the law given to Moses. We'll see why in a moment. If you're kind of new to Christianity, in the Old Testament, that's there's two major parts in the Bible. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. So everything in the Old Testament is before Jesus Christ. Everything in the New Testament is after Jesus Christ. Well, in the Old Testament, 
God tells Moses to build a tabernacle. Eventually, that would be called a temple. The tabernacle is basically just a traveling temple before they had a permanent structure, a permanent temple, which was built by King Solomon. But in the Old Testament, the temple was was very important in the life of, of a faithful Jew to the Israelites. It was the place, and here's why, it was the place where God's people were nourished by the literal presence of God. All over the Old Testament, you see God described as like a fire sometimes, as a cloud, and other times. The Bible says that when Moses completed the tabernacle and when Solomon completed the temple, that the cloud of the presence of God rested on the temple itself. So the temple in the Old Testament was actually the dwelling place of Yahweh, of God himself. So it was a place where faithful Jewish people would go to make sacrifices for their sin, but not only that, they, they would hear, both through teaching and symbolic rituals, both God's saving history, how God had saved them, and how God would save them through the coming Messiah, typified in the sacrifice of, of lambs and different things like this. They, they would go to the temple and be reminded that they would be saved by the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what they would know. I want you to consider the importance of, of the temple in the Old Testament by looking at Psalm chapter 84, where it says, How lovely are your dwelling places. And this is a reference to the temple. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and even yearns for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are praising you. Selah. O Lord, God of hosts, skipping to verse 8. Hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, our God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. It's talking about the temple. A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold, not even in it, I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tent of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts you. What a fabulous description of how important the temple was to the Old Testament Jew. Incredible. So important had become the the care of God's house for the Israelites that the entire assembly, the leaders and the people, took personal responsibility in caring for their place of worship. Now, if you recall, Jerusalem, the temple had been destroyed. This place that the the Jew had valued so much had been destroyed along with the whole city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is about returning and rebuilding not just the structure of the temple, but the worship of God, you see? You see, in Ezra, in the book of Ezra, is right before the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, that's the story of how the temple was rebuilt. Well, Nehemiah is the story of how the walls are rebuilt and the people return to Jerusalem to actually worship their God. See, that's what this this story is really about. It's about their repentance for having let the temple and their worship get into such decadence and disarray. 
So the entire assembly, the leaders, they all of them, you notice at the very beginning of our, our reading, it says all the leaders are signing this covenant. And then what does it do as it continues? Not only all the leaders, but all the people. Everyone there, if you had a heartbeat and you were breathing, you were saying we are committing to no longer neglect the house of God. They were all in because God's word had commanded such. So they bound themselves by covenant no longer to no more forsake the gathered people of God, the redeemed people. They would no longer neglect the house of God. They would no longer neglect its provision. So they began to care again for the, te- for the temple, every single one of them. And here is one way in which they did it in the context of Nehemiah chapter 10. One of the ways they cared for it was by providing for the material upkeep of not only the temple itself, but for the spiritual leaders that ran the house of God. And they did this through their finances, through their crops, through their personal possessions. And if you don't, don't forget the context, they did this by being there too. They were actually present. All these people from all of the outskirts of Jerusalem had moved back to Jerusalem so that they could worship Yahweh together. So the Old Testament law describes several ways in which the people of Israel were supposed to care for their religious institutions, namely the temple. Three of of those ways are mentioned in our text, okay? First was a temple tax. I don't know if you noticed that, but they said we're going to start paying the temple tax again because we need to care for the temple. The second way was through... um, the first fruits, the giving of first fruits. In the Old Testament, first fruits was basically saying, when we have a crop, if I'm a farmer and I have my crop, I'm giving the best first to the Lord. And then the rest will be for, for my, own, my own family and whatnot. Okay? So that's the first fruits. Third was the tithe. Any income or anything that you had grown or anything that you had made, you would tithe 10% of it. Um, a tithe just means 10%. Three different ways, things that they had neglected in caring for the house of God. They said, we've neglected these three things. We're going to go back to them and begin caring for the house of God again. So the people of God in the Old Testament didn't simply just give a tithe, the 10%. Isn't that interesting? The tithe as we know it um, was 10% was for the provision of the priests. There was one tithe, we'll get to this more in a second, was for the, for the provision of the priests, but they gave m- much more than that. They took on far more personal responsibility. On top of that, they gave their first fruits. That was not the tithe. That was something different. They also gave a separate, every three years, they tithed 10% of their income, not even for the church, but for the collection of the poor. Isn't that interesting? So, uh, someone once demonstrated through, through all the different um, um, displays of generosity um, and also the, the commands that God had on the Israelites in the Old Testament was that they were to give away actually 23% of everything that they had, both for the poor, for, the, the, for their local religious institution, and more, in the government. 23%. The saints of old. So here are these people coming back to Jerusalem and saying, we're not going to let the, the house of God fall into disarray anymore. They were on a path of discipleship because they valued what they were doing um, as a community of believers, of called out ones, people who had been rescued. This was part of their discipleship. They knew it, and they committed a covenant together in covenant to do this. Their obedience to God's word should provide us an example today. So let's look at number two. What does this teach us today? How are we to care for the local church? How are we to not neglect the, the, the gathering of ourselves? 
What's clear in our text is that the life from God that reinvigorated the people had two effects. So in other words, God's word was spoken, the people heard God's word, and this had two effects on them. First, it created an urgency to continue listening and obeying the word of God. Their hearts were postured towards following Christ, following Yahweh, in the way that he told them to. And that obedience, not only did did they want to do this in the hearing of God's word and obey God's word, that obedience bound them together as a worshiping community. You see, it, it brought them as individuals into a whole, a collective whole, the body of Christ, as we call it today, called out ones together to worship God our Lord. And here is a barometer, friends, I think, for the life of God in us. When we come to faith in Christ, if we want to kind of measure where we're at, spiritually speaking, I think we can ask the same question. Do we have an increased sensitivity to hear God's word? In other words, we long, we pants for the word of God. But not only that, we desire to actually listen to it. Not that we're perfect, but when we fail, it grieves us and we desire to continue on in holiness, a desire to, to follow him in his presence and his likeness. But not only this, I think the barometer too is we, are, we end up being committed to do this not only as individuals in our own living rooms, but as a local church, as a people of God. We're committed to each other. So the church today is no less called to prioritize the gathering and the care of our local church, you see? In the same way we are today. It remains on us to not neglect our house, the house of God. Though perhaps in distinct ways, different ways, but very similar ways. One important distinction, like for for, um, professor theologian out there, is I I know that there is a difference between the church and Israel, between the house of God today and the house of God in Israel. One important difference is that in the Old Testament, the presence of God rested in in a building. But in the New Testament, the church, when you put faith in Christ, the, the Old Testament, the glory of God rests on you as an individual. So there is no place that we go to to experience the house of God where, the, where it rests in a building, but we all possess that collectively as believers in Jesus Christ. So that is a distinction, but it is similar in the sense that we're, we are still called to gather together as temples of God's presence to worship him together. It's no less important in our day to gather together for the fellowship and hearing of God's word. So there is reserve for these temples, for us as temples. Isn't that just, we can just kind of stop and meditate on that a moment. Can you imagine what scripture is saying in the, in the New Testament? The Bible says that you, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't that incredible? That in spite of our sin, in spite of the ways in which we've neglected our God and worshipped other idols, that God forgives us when we put faith in Christ and he comes to rest on our lives. His presence is in you, friend. Wow. So he reserves us as his mini mobile temples kind of walking around the presence of God. What it, he reserves for these temples the calls not to forsake or to neglect the house of God. And how? How do we not neglect the house of God? Well, first of all, in the purity of our lives. In our meeting together for prayer and for the word and for the Lord's Supper. 
We, we don't neglect the house of our God under the authority and accountability by being under the authority and accountability of the local church and her elders. And finally, and specifically in our context, likewise, we're, we're, we're just as much given to the financial care of our local church, to not neglect it in that sense as well. And since our passage deals specifically with material provision, financial and otherwise, for the place of the gathered saints, we should ask, what does this look like for us as believers and members of the local church today? How does God instruct us to provide for our local church material, materially, financially and specifically? Because we can, we can all say that we're, the way we provide for the church is by mutual fellowship encouragement, showing up, all these different things. And we've seen those things in kind of weeks past by being pure, by honoring the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But one of the ways in which, and specifically in this context, that we care and we don't neglect the church is by the the giving, faithful giving of our material possessions. So let's make some points about this. How do we apply it directly? Because we know that there are some changes in the Old Testament from the New Testament. What's the standard for us in the New Testament to not neglect our house? Now, we want, I want to make four points on uh, just to observe giving in our context. What does giving look like? Why do we do it? And how do we do it in the context of the local church today? Let's look, first of all, at the purpose of giving in the local church. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23 says that we give to learn to revere the Lord our God. The practice of giving not only to the local church, but being generous in general to your family, to your friends, to those in need, is an exercise of reverence to God. Isn't that interesting? Generosity is a reminder that all we are and all we have is from the Lord, according to Randy Alcorn. All we have and all we are is from the Lord. Isn't that interesting? You say, I I worked for my money. Well, yes, you did, but God gave you those hands and he gave you that brain in your head, right? He gave you the muscles in your body. Everything that we've been given, our health, everything is a gift from the Lord. It's not a gift, and by the way, when we're generous, it's not a gift to God. uh, We need to sometimes correct our language because giving a gift to God almost kind of implies that it's yours to give, that you possess it. But we need to remember that we are giving up what is not ours to begin with. It is an intentional reminder that everything, even the breath in our lungs, is a gift from God. And isn't that interesting? Because we talked a little bit about the Sabbath day. We take a day off from work. And why is that? Because we need to remember that, that God is the one who provides. We could work seven days a week and never take a break. And think at the end of our lives that we were a self-made person. And forget that it's Yahweh, it's God in heaven that actually has given us everything that we've had. I want to look to number two. My second point is I would like to look at the state of giving in the local church today. According to Barna Research, Barna is a very popular researcher online, um, a very popular organization of like ch- everything church-related, so anything you want to know about churches. Um, 30, they, Barna Research says that 30 30 to 50% of active church attenders give nothing to their local church. Married adults are more likely to support their local church than single adults. Isn't that interesting? The the average giver gives about 2.5% of their annual gross income. And and by the way, um, I think think that's in general. 
That's not just to the local church, that's to anything. The more money a person makes, the less likely they are to tithe. <laughs> this is according to Barna Research. Now, I'm not saying this to guilt people. I'm not saying this to get you to nudge someone on the side of you. or I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this because I, I got the inside dope of what's going on at our church in particular, and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to like get more money in the offering plate. That's not why I'm saying this. I'm not trying to embarrass people or guilt anyone here. Sometimes there are legitimate reasons in our lives why we can't give anything at all. At all. Situations happen to us. And friend, this is by no means a measure to judge anybody. And if anyone is tempted to judge, just remember the story of the widow's might, right? Like who gave peanuts comparatively to other people, but God honored her more, not because of the amount she gave, but because the heart of what she gave it. You see, this isn't, this isn't a place where we're here to just kind of judge people and judge each other, but it's just to challenge us um, to, to consider, should this be the case in general? Should this be the case in my life, if this is the case in my life? How, how has God called me to be generous, not only to my local church, but to people, to people in my life, to people around me, to people in this world? So we should consider not only... Um, um, if this is the kind of giving that the local church should be demonstrating, but also that we should be. So, no, but let's look at an, a third point. God expects his people, now this is good news for any guests here because you're off the hook. God, God expects his people to support the local church, not the nations. So if you're here as a guest, if you're not yet a Christian, you, under, you are under absolutely no obligation to give any person of faith a dime. Okay? But here's what's more important for you, friend, because there's a bigger issue involved, and that's your soul. It's not to say, by the way, that people who are not yet Christians can't give, right? It's just that we don't ask you to, and you're not expected to. It's, parent, it's paramount that you first understand who God is, who you are, and your need to be saved from your sin. And as a matter of fact, I would implore you, please keep your money in your pocket if you think that by giving money to a church, to this or any other one, makes God happy with you. God is only happy with you if you are in Christ, if your sins have been laid on him at the cross. And the only way, friend, that that can happen for you is to put your trust in him and not yourself. Okay? So that puts the responsibility of the care of the meeting of God's people on God's people themselves. The fourth point I'd like to make is, while, the New, Test while New Testament giving is not limited to a tithe, I do believe it remains a standard. Let me explain to you. I know this is probably the most controversial point I'm making, uh, amongst Christians at least, but let's, let's, let me explain to you why. I still think it's, that it's a standard. One way, like the people um, of God in the Old Testament, um, that we care for the local church is to not neglect the offering of a, of, of a percentage, 10% of our income. That's what tithe means. That's all it means. The word tithe means 10%. Scripture instructs to collect this regularly in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week. That's the, the, the gathering of the church. So in, in the New Testament, we can at least say, that, say this, that there is an expected offering that's made when the church gathers, and that, that is weekly. The Israelites, you remember I said, had three tithes. One's one tithe, that's one ten percent, supported the Levites and the priests in Numbers 18, 
another for sacred festivals in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and the third for the poor in Deuteronomy 14. That's that 23%. You say, why isn't it 30? Well, because the poor was done every three years, not every year. Okay? So it's true, by the way, that some of these ties, that's high, that's a lot, right? Some of these ties were because they were part of a nation, okay? So in other words, we could consider some of these as taxes, like we pay taxes today. So that's why we don't impose a 23% tithe on members of the local church, okay? Um, actually, Scripture says 100, but that's another message for another time. <laughs> but... Um, Anyway, not just to the local church, but everything God has is your, everything you has, have is God's. So we don't give 10% back to God. It's all his, right? So that's, that's the only point I was trying to make. So any, anyway, the most basic tithe in this, though, even if we kind of extract from the fact that they were giving some as taxes and whatnot and all this, 10% at the very least in Numbers 18 was for the priests and Levites. It was for the, the religious institutions, in other words, so that they could carry on with the service of God. Some, some people I know have said, well, if you say that this is legal, isn't this legalism? Uh, you know, what, where's grace giving and all this and all these questions that we have? And sometimes we've heard this language if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. But isn't this legalism, uh, this expectation of 10%? Um, I don't think it is, and let me explain to you why. I think the New Testament supports this. First of all, Jesus tithed. I mean, I think that's a good example right, right off the bat that, um, that, that it's still a standard for us today in the church. Jesus was accused of everything, right? He was accused of breaking the Sabbath. He was accused of eating with sinners. All these different things of that, that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees says, you've, you've broken these things. You know what? They never said he broke the tithe. That my presumption is that's because he didn't. It's because he was paying it. So we know at the very least that Jesus Christ himself paid a tithe. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 23, he tells us to not neglect it. Matthew chapter 23. Second, the second point is that the New Testament says nothing about not observing it. In other words, it's silent. And we would expect it to say something about it if it was no longer something that we needed to follow, okay? And here's why. Let me explain to you. Some of this might be, go if you're kind of new to Christianity, some of this might be going over your head. So let me explain. In the Old Testament, there were a number of things that when Christ came, we no longer have to do anymore because they were fulfilled in Christ. For example, animal sacrifices. We don't got to do that anymore because Jesus is the Lamb of God. We don't need to be circumcised anymore because our hearts have been circumcised in Christ. These are all Old Testament religious duties that they were bound to do until the coming of Christ. You know what it doesn't mention anywhere in the New Testament? Anything about tithing. It has a lot to say about the fact that we don't need to make sacrifices anymore, that we don't need to be circumcised anymore. It has a lot to say about all these things, but it never mentions tithing, not even once. It does not assign the tithe that is the support of the local church um, leaders by, by providing it 10% as an Old Testament duty done away with at the coming of Christ. It never mentions it. It mentions a lot about food. We can eat anything we want now. Remember those, how many people like that one? Romans chapter 14, we can eat bacon, right? I mentioned that last week. It's not a rule anymore, thank God. But you've got to cut 10% of that bacon off and throw it into the offering bucket. 
Third, thirdly, the New Testament commands double honor um, to your local church, specifically to faithfully, uh, faithful pastors preaching the word in 1 Timothy 5.17. The context of that is clearly the way in which that we don't neglect our, our, our local churches by supporting it financially. So no one's going to argue here that it's clearly implied that the church is being regularly supported by her members in the New Testament. And let me, let me make this point, too. Number four, the threat of legalism should not deter a standard. That's, this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say. You know that the New Testament gives us a standard to meet once a week. We shouldn't say, well, that could end up being legalism, so let's not meet anymore. <laughs> we would, we'd never do that. The, the, the scripture says to pray without ceasing. And we shouldn't say, well, I could, prayer could end up being legalism, so let's not pray anymore. The scripture says to study, to show yourself approved, the workman that needeth not be ashamed. So we shouldn't say, well, you know, studying scripture can become legalism, so let's not study scripture anymore. You see what I'm, you see what I'm getting at here? We can't say, I, I think the reason we, we have sometimes a problem with, with finances in particular is because it might be an idol in our lives. It's just one of those things that we can't let go of. There's fear involved in it. Okay. So having a standard doesn't not necessarily mean that we're being legalistic. Because if that were the case, then we wouldn't meet once a week. We'd never meet. We'd meet once a year. <laughs> Out of fear of being legalistic, right? So we don't abandon what, what Scripture calls holy practices because we might, we might venture off into legalism. So the idea that we have obligations to obey God's word in anything, in any matter, doesn't mean that we're under the law. Any regular holy habit can become a, a point of arrogant boasting, can it? Any regular holy habit can become a point of arrogant boasting. Church attendance, Bible memory, anything. The solution is not disobedience to Scripture in those areas. It's repentance of your heart, of your attitude, and why you're doing it to begin with. You see? Being free from the law doesn't remove holy standards. Only it removes the threat of condemnation if we fail that standard. You see? See the, the difference there? We are, un, we are not under the law. We're under grace. In other words, you're not saved because you throw money in the offering, and you're not saved because you pray in the morning. You're saved because of Jesus Christ. And every time that you fail, if you've put trust in Jesus Christ, your salvation is secure. Legalism is starting to think that your holy habits are saving you. And they're not, friend. Finally, the early church clearly continued the, this practice of regular giving or tithing. Dr. Alcorn says there's no suggestion that the early church ever retreated from believing that the tithe, the, the tithe was a mandatory minimum for giving. They clearly continued the practice in the context of the local church. And this was um, an Old Testament, if, excuse me, if this was an Old Testament regulation done away with at the death and resurrection of Christ, we would expect to see it addressed in the New Testament. We would, we would ex expect to not see it being imposed on the early church, but it was. Issues of food were not, issues of sacrifices were not, issues of circumcisions were not. Not only did the early church practice it, but they told that they told the churches to continue it positively. We don't see that in the New Testament, but we see that in the early church fathers. We just see the practice of it in the New Testament, not the explicit command. Okay? 
So the church's continued tithing and, and the continuation of that tithing, it motivated absolutely no correction in the New Testament or the writings of the early church fathers. As a matter of fact, one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, says the Jews were constrained to, constrained, underline that word, the Jews were constrained to a regular payment of tithes, 10%. Christians who have liberty assign all their possessions to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? They were constrained. In other words, they had the, um, the, the, the handicap of only being able to give just 10. <laughs> we have the liberty of giving it all. To not have it own our hearts. To, be a, you know, to, to pay someone's rent for them. Because they're in trouble. You see, this isn't just about the local church, friends. This is a way of life. Does our money own us? Or are we going to neglect everything else just so that we can have it? Just so that we can build it up and, and save it? So that we can have lots of it and feel safe? Or can we give it away, give it back to God because it's his to begin with? Now, I know this is a hot-button issue, okay? You're probably kind of wishing maybe you didn't come to church today. Um, <laughs> um, I know this is a hot-button issue, and I get it, because there have been people that have been lied to. They have been robbed by self-serving, greedy pastors, okay? I, kn I know that that's happened to people. That may have happened to some of you. Maybe you've, that's happened to at former churches of yours, or you know, you've just heard the record, TV evangelists, all this stuff. Right, self-serving, greedy people who are just preaching messages like this so that they can buy a nice yacht. Okay? So I get why this is, might, might be a hot-button issue, but as a preventative measure for this temptation, a healthy local church is going to have measures where you're going to prevent me from that happening. And I'm going to prevent you from that happening. It's going to look like you're going to be involved in what my salary is. You're going to be involved in what our budget is. I'm, I'm accountable to you, in other words. I'm not the boss that tells everyone what to do. I'm accountable to you. And likewise, not only am I accountable to you, but you're accountable to me. You're going to give me the liberty to actually talk about things like this when we open up in Scripture in places. I'm not going to talk about this every service, but it specifically when the Bible addresses it, you're going to give me the liberty to actually talk about it. And not say, don't talk about that man. <laughs> right? That's how, that's how we can get past this and how we can trust each other. By accountability, right? That's how we do it. The, the church is accountable to the pastor, and the pastor is accountable to the church. And that's, that's how we do this. So these Israelites, and this is my, just my closing statement. These Israelites, under the leadership of Nehemiah, had seen the devastation that was the result of neglecting God's word in God's house. They had, seen, they had seen the devastation in their lives for drifting away from the word of God and the people of God. And God, the giver of life and, and the giver of all good things, had called them from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, he called them, and he chose them and had not rejected them. He brought them back even after this this forgetting of their word, forgetting of his people, their, their rebellion towards it because they curved in on themselves, drifted from him, saw this great, this great devastation. But on this beautiful day, God spoke again. And could God be speaking again to you? 
getting a vision of his grace and of his forgiveness, of the beauty of his presence. They remembered all of his gracious provision in his word, the provision of his people, the provision of his house. And friends, let's remember that together this morning. Amen? All right, thank you for listening. Join me in prayer, please. God, we just thank you so much, Lord, for your, um, your kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us in your word. And God, I pray, Lord, that anything that I said this morning that's confusing, that you would make clear, that anything that I said today that was wrong, that you would help this church to quickly forget. But God, anything that I said today from your word that was true, that you would challenge us and inspire us. God, we love you. We love your church. We love your word. We thank you that we have the honor to know each other, to encourage each other in Christ. And friend, if you don't know Christ, I want to ask you this morning um, to come to him in faith. There is a holy God in heaven who created all things, including you, and he has a holy standard. And friends, all of us, including you, have violated that law. We have spurned our God and worshipped other gods and sinned against him. And the result is death. Eternal separation from God because of his good, because of his holiness and righteousness. But because he loves you, friend, and sinners like you, he sent his son to die for sinners like us. To take on the curse of sin and death that we deserved And all of the holy wrath of God was put on his son so that we would never have to bear it. Friends, would you turn, if you don't know Jesus, would you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ this morning? There is no magic prayer that you have to pray or an aisle or anything like this that you have to do. You just have to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess to him. Scripture says that the next step for you is to rise and be baptized. Confess the Lord to the church. So if you're accepting Christ for the first time, I just want to encourage you to come and talk to me so that we can talk about your baptism. If you want to learn more, you're not really there yet, just same thing. Come come talk to us so that we can walk you through and help you. God, we love you. We thank you so much um, as we transition now to the your supper that you tell us to do each time we meet. We thank you, God, that it was your blood that was shed for us and your body that was broken for us so that our blood and our, and our body, our blood should not be shed and our body should not be broken. God, we thank you for this, God, and we ask, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts right now, that you would forgive us for our sin, that we would not take this supper in an unworthy manner. And if you don't know Christ, I ask that you sit this, this supper out and consider Um, the gracious provision of Jesus Christ at the cross for you. This is a uniquely uh, Christian practice. And we do it with great delight. Your word says, our Lord, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. This is my body. Eat this. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. Drink from it. My blood. 
the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You have forgiven our sins, God, in Christ. All of them. And we love you. God, we are debtors, and we believe that you are coming again, where we'll drink of that fruit of the vine from that day when you, we drink it new with you in, your father's king, in our Father's kingdom. In Christ's name.